it's very easy and convenient to blame technology or to blame a distraction for doing something to us. We love blaming something outside of us for causing our circumstances. But what I realize is that, you know, the more I research this topic of distraction is that distraction has been with the human race forever. Hey, podcast listener, even if you are alone in your entrepreneurial journey, know that today, right now in your earbuds, you are joined by thousands of entrepreneurs from all around the globe seeking to grow better, more profitable location-independent businesses. If you'd like to learn more about what we do and download our entire back catalog, check out tropicalmba.com. Yeah, buddy. Welcome back to the pod. We are in Austin, Texas. We got the fancy Shore microphones. I don't even got to hold my microphone. It's nice. I'm uh, hands-free right now. <laughs> it's it's nice. good to be home. It's good to be home today. We got an episode. It's a special episode because we got an incredible advertising partner in smashdigital.com. We got an incredible dynamite deal. What is a dynamite deal? We're going to tell you guys. You're going to find out. It's a brand new segment of the show. It's a brand new segment. We got rock reviews and news. How long is this episode going to take? This is going to be a long episode. Okay. I'm strapping in. It's long form, which is the opposite of a lot of these distracting apps that everybody's got nowadays. We're going to get stuck in to a topic that I think affects us all. We're going to share some of our thoughts about it at the end. But today we got an expert about the idea of addiction to technology and how to fight against it to find more time for you to be productive in your business. Today's guest is Nir Eyal, and he's one of the most thoughtful writers about behavioral design. He has a blog, Ian, called nearandfar.com, so that's N-I-R and far.com. And this week, he's come out with a, a new book called Indistractable, How to Control Your Attention and Choose Life. He got famous for writing this book called Hooked, how to build habit-forming products. So it's sort of like the yin and the yang because Nir really made a name for himself in Silicon Valley by writing this book, Hooked, that so many product designers read. In fact, I'm wearing a Fitbit right now, and I'm, I'm sort of obsessed with the idea of how much sleep I got the night before now. Oh, you very much are. I have to hear about it pretty much every day. I announce it as if it's yes. some enormous accomplishment or some blight on my record, like my sleep was. <laughs> and, you know, a lot of the people that are designing these new products were really inspired by Nier's first book, Hooked. And the second book, Indistractable, is really a response to the appropriate place of technology in our lives and how we can, you know, find more space in our lives to be present and to be productive. Seems interesting, Dan, on one, on one hand, like, when is an appropriate time to be hooked and why should you be hooked, right? And then <laughs> another, on the other hand, it's like, when should we be unplugged? When yeah. should we not be paying attention? I mean, th- these are things that you and I and everybody probably listening to this show struggle with every single day. Totally. And, and, and also, like, we try to engineer it, right? Like, we want to hook our customers. And so I think, you know, Nier is a really thoughtful guy for a bunch of reasons. The first is that, look, he's not just a writer and a thinker. He's an entrepreneur. So he had an incredibly successful entrepreneurial career, and then he went on to become an an author and reflect on these ideas. But also, yeah, you know what I'm doing with my productive time a lot of times? 
trying to figure out ways to, to hook people. I want people to buy our stuff. I want people to pay attention to what's going on. And so I think there's an interesting, you know, both sides of the ticket in this episode for those of you looking to free up some productive space, but also for those of you looking to captivate the attention of your customers. So let's just dig right into it, boss man. I started out this conversation with Nir by asking about his early career working for Boston Consulting Group, or BCG, that led him ultimately into a founding a business of his own. Well, I have to be honest, I'm not the best employee, I learned. You know, I really value my autonomy. And what I found was that when I was working for somebody else, if I respected that person, if I thought that that person was doing a better job than I could do, then I loved working for that person. But if I thought that the person was was someone who I could do their job better than they could, <laughs> and that's quite egotistical, I understand that. But uh, that's something that I encountered from time to time. And that would kill me. And when it comes to consulting, you, you know, you're assigned to whoever you're assigned. And unfortunately, at the time, and this is still the case in many companies, people work their way up the corporate hierarchy because they do one job well. And then somehow there's this myth that if you do one job well, then you can do the job above you well and you can become a manager, right? So if you're good at sales, you can be a sales manager. Well, it turns out that many times those are totally different skill sets. And so what I found in consulting was that they would take people who were really good consultants and then put them into management roles and they'd be horrible managers. <laughs> and that was really frustrating for me. And so you know, when I had a great manager, I loved it. And when I had a bad manager, I was miserable. And so after BCG, I started a, a, my first company. I co-founded a solar energy business. We sold that a few years later. Then I went to Stanford for business school. Then we started another company back in 2007, 2008. That was in the advertising and gaming industry. This was when Facebook and Twitter and all these companies were kind of just getting really popular. So we were at the right place at the right time. Then we sold that company. After that company was acquired, I had this thesis in my mind around how I wanted to spend my time, my human capital, kind of like how a venture capitalist decides how to allocate their financial capital. I was trying to figure out how to allocate my human capital. And so I had this theory that whatever it is that I would work on next had to involve habits because I was seeing the world change into a world where big screens were becoming less common. You know, when the business was, was acquired in 2012, the pattern was very clear. We were moving from desktops to laptops to mobile devices. Now we have wearable devices and now we have auditory devices like, you know, the Amazon Alexa and uh, Microsoft Cortana, these products. So the interface has disappeared. And so that's when I kind of had this revelation that the products of the future would really need to be the ones that can create consumer habits. And so I had that hypothesis. I wanted to go into that business of, you know, how can I figure out how to build a habit forming product? And I looked at the bookstore and I couldn't find any books that were about how to build habit forming products. So I decided to blog about it. And then the blog became the book on that topic. I'll make a analysis with little information and tell me if it's true or not, but it sounds like after you exited your second business that you made the decision to become a cultural critic and an analyst, an academic, a thinker. Why do that instead of start another business? Well, interestingly enough, it, it is my business in a weird way. You know, I, I started writing my blog about how to build habit-forming products for me, and I really didn't care if anybody else read it. I found that one of the best hacks in life is to write. 
I think people really undervalue the power of writing. And it's not writing for publication. It's writing for the sake of thinking. It is such a precious, rare commodity these days for someone to sit down and just think through their problems. We are so quick to jump to gurus and experts and you know books and, and all those things have their place. But the first step needs to be to sit down and think. And my medium for thinking is writing. And so I started blogging for myself just to kind of log what I was learning. And people liked it. <laughs> and I got a call from a former professor, a business school professor of mine by the name of Dr. Baba Shiv. And he said, I really like your work. You know, what if we teach a class together? I said, sure, that's, that's terrific. And he was very kind. And he, he gave me kind of carte blanche on designing this, this class. And that became kind of the outline of, of the book. But I just kind of followed my energy. I followed my curiosity. And that led to, of course, speaking engagements and now consulting work and then two books. How important do you think your track record as an entrepreneur was to your credibility as a writer, speaker, and teacher? I'm not sure about the credibility part. I'm sure it doesn't hurt. I think it wouldn't have been possible otherwise. When you read a business book, and believe me, I read a lot of business books, you can always sniff out whether someone has actually done what they say, <laughs> right? <laughs> when it's an academic who sits in an ivory tower and only studies what entrepreneurs do versus someone who has been in the trenches. I mean, you know, I have knocked on customers' doors to sell them solar systems. I have been on roofs installing these solar panels. I know what, you know, hard work is like. I know what it's like when one of your employees doesn't show up and you got to do whatever job that you previously paid them to do. And so I've really been in the trenches. And so the hardest part of my current job of being an author is not what to write. It's what not to write about. It's filtering out all the stuff that you believe your reader shouldn't waste their time on. And a lot of authors don't really care. They just like hearing themselves talk on the page. And so they leave it up to the reader to, you know, read this entire huge book and maybe you'll take out a few good nuggets. Well, that's not at all my approach when I write. Like I, I write with my reader in mind, meaning if my reader wants to just skip it to the end of each chapter, they're gonna find a remember this section that summarizes everything in that chapter. And that's fine with me, right? And I'll give them exercises for what to do with that information so that if, if they just wanna skim, that's totally fine with me, as opposed to, you know, these flowery stories and all these studies and anecdotes. I write for the entrepreneur. I write for the person who's short on time and is looking for insights that they can use immediately. Let's talk about some of the surprising conclusions that you came across in your first book, Hooked. I mean, what surprised you about the products that were emerging during this time frame that were maybe different from what had happened before in our culture? So Hooked is just about approaching its five-year anniversary. So it was published in 2014. It's interesting in that at the time, you know, I was kind of pounding the table saying, look, you know, you have to consider consumer psychology. Like we can design products to change people's behavior. And at the time, when I first wrote Hooked, that was a very novel idea, right? The idea was, well, it's just the best product that wins. And I was saying, no, no, no that's a lie. <laughs> it's not necessarily true. The, having the best technology is table stakes. There are lots of companies with the best product, the best technology that are dead and they, they died because they couldn't form a customer habit. They couldn't get people to come back to the product with little or no conscious thought to build that unprompted user engagement. 
I think we've seen a sea change now. Now I no longer have to convince people of that, right? Now I can just say, well, you know, Facebook and Twitter and Instagram and WhatsApp and Slack and Snapchat, how do they keep you coming back? It's not a happy accident, right? Back in when I first wrote Hooked, people thought, oh, you know, these, these kids in Silicon Valley, they just got lucky. Nuh-uh, <laughs> they didn't just get lucky. They understand what makes you click and what makes you tick better than you understand yourself. And so my goal was to democratize some of these ideas so that it's not just games and frivolous social media apps, it's all sorts of products that can use the same psychology to keep people coming back to their product or service. Would you be willing to mention a company that has used the principles that you've written about and hooked to a very positive effect versus a company that has used them to a negative effect culturally? Sure, yeah, so I actually don't know any companies that have used it to a negative effect. So, you know, the companies that I profile are the the ones who do it best. So when I profile, you know, Facebook and Instagram and Slack and all of these companies that use the No, no, no. I don't mean I don't mean like uh how effective they are at manipulating your psychology. I mean like that you think because they're doing that it's had a negative effect on the user. Oh, oh, okay. Then we get into like a, a maybe a tangent issue, but I can definitely give you good examples. Uh, you know, in the 5 years that the book has been out, companies like Paga, which is a, a client of mine who, who uses the hook model to bring millions of previously unbanked people in Africa online for the first time through the cell phones, people who can't have access to traditional banking, they are forming these habits of saving money. Kahoot, the largest educational software in the world, they just went public. That's a company that uh, they called me up a few years ago and told me their hook model, and I immediately invested in their product because I, lo I loved it so much. And so they're bringing healthy habits to make the classroom more engaging, right? Wouldn't it be fantastic if kids actually wanted to engage with learning as opposed to being passive consumers where we shove information down their throats against their will? Companies like Fitbod. Fitbod was a company that I actually came across this app. It's a workout app. And I came across it and, you know, my entire life I've struggled to, to work out consistently. I used to be clinically obese at one point. And this was the first app that actually got me into the habit of exercise. And in fact, I, a few years before I found Fitbot, I actually wrote an article that said why your fitness app is making you fat because I was so frustrated <laughs> with how bad fitness apps were at the time. And then Fitbot came around and I started using it and I got hooked to Fitbot and actually wrote the developers. I said, this is fantastic. Congratulations. I really love it. And they said, hey, Nereo, we actually read your book. We designed the, the, <laughs> the, the product based on the Hooked model. That was my goal with writing Hooked. You know, the, the goal was not to write it for Google and Facebook and these guys. They have known this psychology for years and years. I wanted to write it for everyone else. I wanted to write it for the products that can build healthy habits around fitness, around productivity around connecting with loved ones. Those are the kind of healthy habits that we can use to improve people's lives. Michael Lewis, an author who wrote Liar's Poker, when he wrote that book, he thought that it was like this negative sales letter for working on Wall Street. And everybody would read this book and realize how morally corrupt going to go hustle on Wall Street was. And he said he was shocked by how many young people read the book and packed their bags and drove to New York City. Did you have a similar experience after writing Hooked? Did you see people use the book in ways that you felt uncomfortable with? Well, not really in that in that way because well, okay, I'll tell you I'll tell you what happens. When Hooked was published, my daughter was around 5 years old, and I remember sitting with her uh, and I had this this one occasion where I had this afternoon with her 
And we had this book of things that daddies and daughters could do together, this like daddy and me book. One of the activities was to ask each other this question, if you could have any superpower, what superpower would you want? And I remember that moment so clearly because I remember looking up from my phone and saying, honey, what, what, where are you? Because she had left the room. Because in the, in the span of asking that question, I unconsciously had taken out my phone and started looking at something on my device, and I'd blown it. I had totally blown this perfect daddy-daughter moment, and she got the hint that she was less important than whatever was on my phone, and she left. She left the room. And here I was, you know, having written this book, Hooked, and I realized that I had gotten unhealthfully hooked myself. And so I said, whoa, this is, this is bad news. What's happened here? You know, we, we wanted to build products and services to improve people's lives. And here I am overusing these products and services. So I thought, well, you know, let me, let me get on this. Let me figure out how to fix this problem. And so I spent, I do what I always do per what, what I said previously. I wrote about it, right? I, I tried to analyze what was going on in my head and in my life by writing about it. And I thought, you know, originally I would write a book called Unhooked about like, whoa, you know, this is actually way more powerful than I expected. And I got every book I could possibly find on the topic of distraction and technology and addiction and focus and all of these topics. They all gave the same advice, which I proceeded to follow, which was to get rid of the distraction, right? Go on a digital detox. It's the distraction that's the problem. The technology is doing it to you. The technology is melting your brain. So I got myself a 1995 word processor, right? I found it on eBay this uh, word processor that does no internet connection, all you can do is type on it. I got a feature phone on Alibaba for 12 bucks that does nothing but send text messages and receive phone calls. I got rid of all the apps and I sat down to do my writing. Okay, now it was gonna work. Now I was gonna prove that you see all of this dangerous (laughs) technology is what was getting me distracted. So I sit down to write and then I say to myself, oh, you know what? There's that book on my bookcase that I've been meaning to read. I, I, let me just check that out for a second. And, you know, my desk is kind of a mess here. Let me just clean this up for just a minute. And I realized it kind of hit me that, wait a minute, this is just an excuse <laughs> that I became really good at finding distraction when I was looking for it. And so that's when I had this revelation that, wait a minute, you know, distraction really starts from within. And this is something that's not really discussed because it's very easy and convenient to blame technology or to blame a distraction for doing something to us. We love blaming something outside of us for causing our circumstances. But what I realized is that, you know, the more I searched this, researched this topic of distraction is that distraction has been with the human race forever. Socrates and Aristotle talked about the nature of akrasia, this tendency to do things against our better interest, 2,500 years ago. All that's changed is the medium. And so that's when I started to kind of get real with this. And, and, and I learned that if we want to tackle distraction, we have to start from within. And so that became the first step of the four-part model in Indistractable. One of the things you mentioned just now is that Socrates was genuinely worried about books and the written word. Yeah, I think it's the same worry we have today. You know, one of the things that we hear in the press all the time is how technology is changing our brains and dopamine this and addiction that. Socrates was worried about the same thing. He talked about how the written word would make men's minds feeble because then they wouldn't have to remember things. And he's right. We don't have the capacity to hold things in our brain the way that the ancient Greeks did. We write it down instead. We have offloaded the data that 
you know, you could keep in your head onto paper and computers and, and other medium. So he's absolutely right. It comes at a cost. The thing is, everything changes the brain. Learning a new skill, learning tennis, falling in love, all of these things change the brain. They all involve dopamine squirts, so to speak. That doesn't mean that we're powerless. And I think that's the logical leap that a lot of people make these days. They say, well, if something is changing the brain, it must be bad. And there's nothing we can do about it. And what I learned, one of the most surprising things I learned on this five-year journey of writing Indistractable is that one of the worst things that you can do if you care about focus, if you want to be fully present in your life, one of the worst things you can do is to believe this crap, that there's nothing you can do about it, that you have no agency, that you're addicted, that it's hijacking your brain. Because it turns out, and there's a lot of research that shows this, when we believe this kind of stuff, when we believe that we're powerless, it becomes true. There was this great study I cite in the book with alcoholics. And remember, this is, you know, alcohol is something you ingest into your body. We're not freebasing Facebook and injecting Instagram, right? Yeah. Even with alcoholics, they found the number one determinant of whether an alcoholic would relapse after treatment, the number one criteria was not their level of physical dependency. It was their belief in their own power to quit. So when we tell people and believe that technology is addicting us, that it's hijacking our brains, there's nothing we can do, it's called learned helplessness. We believe that to be the case. And so that's why I'm so passionate about this book is that I want to get the word out there that we have power. I want to empower people to put distraction in its place, to make sure that we can get the best out of technology without letting it get the best of us. Because I love this stuff, right? I love these tools. They connect me to people that I would not connect with. They keep me in touch with friends that I care about all over the world. But we haven't quite learned yet as a society how to adapt to these things. One particularly illuminating point that you bring up or a story that I think sets the tone for this look into ourselves is the story of the two sets of flight attendants. That's a great study that was conducted out of Tel Aviv. So they, they had this, these two sets of flight attendants, both left from Tel Aviv to two different flights. One flight went to London and one flight went to New York. So one was about a three, four hour flight. The other was eight to 10 hour flight. And the flight attendants were all smokers. And they wanted to determine with these smokers, what was the breaking point where they would crave a cigarette? Because the traditional thinking around how addiction works, especially if it's a chemical addiction, is that as the chemical is processed in the brain, the craving increases. So you would think after you know 30 minutes, an hour, an hour and a half, the cravings for both sets of smoking flight attendants would be at the same level, right? So they, they asked them, every 30 minutes, we want you to, to tell us how much you crave a cigarette. What happened was when the flight attendants in London arrived at the gate and they were 30 minutes from being, being able to get off the plane and smoke, that's when their cravings were highest. At the same exact time, the flight attendants who were flying to New York were high above the Atlantic Ocean where they could not smoke, right? They'd be fired or maybe arrested if they tried to smoke on a flight. They reported no cravings. It was only when both sets of flight attendants were 30 minutes away from being able to light up, whether that was eight hours later or three hours later, that's when they felt the highest amount of craving. And so the reason I, I talk about this story of the two flight attendants is to talk about this idea of 
our mindset, how we think about our capabilities, how we think about what I call our temperament. This goes in line with what we were saying earlier about how important it is to properly shape your self-image. Your self-image has a profound impact on your behavior. Another study that I cite in the book that's really important for people to hear about is this idea of ego depletion. And we've all been told in one way or another that your willpower runs out, right? Commercials tell us this, you know, that, that uh, you deserve a break, you deserve to relax because, you know, you're spent at the end of the day. And in fact, there was a, a psychologist by the name of Roy Baumeister who did quite a bit of research around this idea that somehow our willpower is like a gas tank, that it depletes the more we work on a task. And he even did these famous experiments where he, he found that you could restore people's willpower if you gave them a sugary drink. Well, then a bunch of other psychologists took a look at these studies and they said, well, this is a little bit fishy. I'm, I'm not quite sure. And they tried to replicate these studies and they, they found that they could not replicate these studies. And still to this day, they have not been able to replicate Baumeister's studies, except for Carol Dweck at Stanford, who you probably heard from if you've read her, her book, Mindset, fantastic book. She did a fascinating study that found that ego depletion really did exist, but for only one group of people. And those people were the ones who believed it existed. <laughs> <laughs> so if you were the person who believes, oh, I'm spent, I need a break, give me some Gatorade, give me some lemonade, because I'm spent, then it became true. You really did run out of willpower. And so that's why it's so important that we don't believe this rubbish. We don't teach ourselves learned helplessness by thinking that we are powerless against distraction. Here's the bottom line. If you rank higher in Google search engine results, your company is going to make more money. Why not get experts involved who've got proven strategies? Check out smashdigital.com. That's right. Longtime listeners of the show will be familiar with leading SEO specialist Travis Jameson's suite of companies previously called Supremacy SEO and Sassicorn. Well, now they've rebranded as smashdigital.com. Same incredible SEO insights and results. Yes, Ian and myself have used these services. And what smashdigital.com offers is simple, fully managed SEO services, link building and SEO audits. In fact, they're giving away free audits to TMBA listeners. Check out smashdigital.com slash TMBA. You'll get a free audit from a real human being. These mini audits are done by the management team over at Smash Digital and they're personalized for your company. No automated software, just great advice from the SEO professionals at smashdigital.com. This is an SEO firm that isn't obsessed with regurgitating Google's best practices. These guys practice what they preach. So get a fresh view on the potential that your business has to reach new sustainable sources of customers from organic SEO traffic by reaching out to the team over at smashdigital.com. And why not take them up on that free SEO audit? Smashdigital.com slash TMBA. Check it out. You set the tone for us to sort of go on this inward journey to set the framework for us to start to build better habits and adopt tools to address distraction. Well, one of the things you mentioned is that you say we are hardwired for dissatisfaction. Yeah. What does that mean? You know, most of us believe in this idea that human motivation is the pursuit of pleasure 
and the avoidance of pain. This is called Freud's pleasure principle. And for decades and decades, people in the psychology community believed it. And by and large today, people would say, oh, that makes sense. Yeah, pursuit of pleasure, avoidance of pain. That's what motivation is all about. Not true. Turns out that motivation comes from only one thing, and that is the desire to escape discomfort. All human behavior is about the desire to escape discomfort. Even the pursuit of pleasure, desire itself is uncomfortable. It's called the homeostatic response. So when you feel physiologically uncomfortable, let's say you're cold. Well, what do you do when you feel bad cold, right? That doesn't feel comfortable. You put on a coat. If you feel hunger pangs, that feels bad, you eat. So those are physiological sensations. The same goes for psychological sensations, right? When we're lonely, we check Facebook. When we're uncertain, we Google. When we're bored, we check YouTube or Reddit or stock prices or the news or whatever. And so what we have to realize is that all of our behavior is spurred by this desire to escape discomfort. And this is a really, really important revelation because that means if all behavior is spurred by a desire to escape discomfort, that means that time management is pain management. And so that's really where we have to start. If you are not getting enough done in your day, if you feel like you could accomplish more, if you find yourself frequently distracted, the first place to start are with what I call these internal triggers. We have to understand what it is driving us to seek escape from that discomfort. Can you say more about how time management and pain management become the same thing? Yeah, so it's really about understanding that if the source of all of our behavior is the desire to escape discomfort, well then, if we are not managing our time the way we wish, if our behavior isn't in accordance with our values, we have to ask ourselves why. Remember, the big question of indistractable is very simple. Why don't we do what we say we're going to do? We know that we shouldn't eat that chocolate cake, we do. We know we should go exercise, we don't. We know we should sit down on our desk and do that big project and instead we're scrolling Slack channels or checking email or doing something we know we shouldn't. Why? We know perfectly rationally what we should do, but we don't do it. And the answer to this riddle starts with the fact that we are looking for escape from discomfort. Now that comes in various degrees of self-harm. To the extreme, when you look at the source of all addictions, the one thing that all addictions have in common is an escape from an uncomfortable reality. People drink themselves, people uh, inject themselves, gambling or you know, sex addiction, whatever. All of this is a desperate attempt to escape an uncomfortable reality. And so if we are to do what we say we're going to do, we have to fundamentally understand what is that discomfort that I'm trying to escape from. And so that's where I devote you know, the whole first section. It's not the entire book, but the most important step is learning these tools to either fix the source of the problem, if we can, or if we can't fix the source of the problem, the source of the pain, we have to learn techniques to cope with that discomfort. And so I devote a good chunk of the book to learning these techniques to cope with that internal trigger in a healthier way, as opposed to getting distracted. Addiction, procrastination, coping, these are enormous answers to very difficult problems. What is on the other side of the aisle that has more potential? What are some sort of universal strategies for managing your time that start to address these really big things? First of all, trying to figure out how to fix the problem. So about half the book is about things that you can do as an individual. And we should do those things first and foremost, right? That is fully in our control. 
Unfortunately, though, you know, as I started to write the book, at first I wrote a book that was like very, very practical. And there still are a lot of very practical tips in the book. But then, you know, at some point I realized the more research I did, I realized, you know, where do these internal triggers come from? Some of these internal triggers come from stuff we're dealing with in our life. But a big chunk of those internal triggers have to do with the environments where we spend our time. There's a section in the book, it's probably my favorite one, which is about how to build an indistractable workplace. People today will blame technology for hooking them to their workplace, making it so that they can have to constantly check Slack or email or whatever. But I discovered some really interesting insights around what kind of companies employees feel like they are tethered to the office, where they feel like they overuse technology and the use of technology itself. And I found that there's no correlation between how much a company uses technology and that feeling that people have kind of lost control and they always feel like they have to check. There's no correlation there. It turns out that people distracted at work is a symptom of a dysfunctional workplace culture. If technology addiction is caused by technology, then you would expect the, the environments that are exposed to the most technology should be the ones that are the most addicted, so to speak, to technology. And that's not at all what I found. I profile uh, a company that many people feel tethers them to the workplace, like Slack. They have a great company culture that when you go to Slack headquarters, there's a big pink sign written on the, a wall there that says, work hard and go home. It's part of the company ethos, it's part of the company culture to not perpetuate this cycle of responsiveness. And so they have these norms, these rules around when and where you can use these devices. Around six o'clock, the parking lot is empty at Slack. If you use a Slack channel off hours and weekends, you get chastised by people saying, what are you doing? Why did you post this? You know, this is off hours. And most importantly, they have open communication channels. They have a, an environment where people feel that they have agency over their circumstances. There's some fascinating research that shows there's a confluence of two type of work environments, two factors in a work environment that literally lead to depression and anxiety disorders. And those two factors are environments with high expectations coupled with low control. How would that manifest in the workplace? Oh, my gosh. I mean, <laughs> back to my my first job out of college at, at Boston Consulting Group, right? Like you, you constantly had more and more and more put on your plate and you had little control over that flow of demands on you, right? So think about, I don't know if you ever saw that classic episode of I Love Lucy where she's she's folding chocolates on the, off the co conveyor belt, right? She has to like- no. The, the chocolates are coming down the production line and she has to fold them and put them on the line. And then her boss comes around and says, oh, you're doing a very good job. Now speed it up. And she like cranks the lever and now the, the chocolates are going even faster. And so that's an, uh, an example of high expectations, do more work and you have no control over that lever to slow it down or adjust their circumstance. And so those are the kind of job circumstances, the workplace environment, where literally that type of work environment drives people crazy. It creates these uncomfortable sensations. It creates these internal triggers. And guess what people do when they feel bad? We just talked about it, right? When you have an internal trigger, when you have this uncomfortable psychological state, what do you do in response to every negative psychological state? You seek escape. By the way, it's not that high expectations are bad. It's only when they're coupled with a situation where people can't do anything about those high right. expectations, where they also have low control. So the response to this terrible work environment is that people are desperate to grab control and agency over anything. So what do they do? They check email. 
They go on Slack channels. They text each other all day and all night to feel like they're in control. And in the process, they're only making the problem worse because they're sending emails they didn't need to send, they're responding to stuff they didn't need to respond to, and they're making work for everybody else. And so it turns out that this is a huge problem. We have to figure out how to fix our workplace culture because that is the real source, the root cause of distraction in the workplace. You mentioned that distractions are proximate causes, not root causes, and distraction is how we deal with pain. So how can we deal with pain more effectively than with distraction? Yeah, so first we should define what I mean by distraction. If you can picture a number line in your mind, to the right is an arrow pointing right that is pointing towards traction. Traction is any action that moves you towards what you want. It's something you do with intent. Now, the opposite of traction is distraction. And now, what moves those actions? What moves us towards traction or distraction? Well, only two things. Either internal triggers, which is what we talked about earlier, those uncomfortable emotional sensations that we seek to escape, and we can seek to escape them with either traction or distraction, right? We can do something healthy, something that we want to do, or we can get distracted and do something harmful, something that we didn't plan to do. The other thing that spurs us to action is what's called an external trigger. An external trigger are those pings, dings, rings, all of these things that prompt us to either traction or distraction. So if you get a notification that says, hey, it's time for that meeting or it's time to go work out and that's what you end up doing, well, that's terrific, that's traction. But if you get a notification in the middle of time with your kids or in a meeting or whatever and it moves you to something you didn't wanna do, well, now that's a distraction. So to answer your question, how do we fundamentally manage distraction? There are four key strategies. Number one is to master those internal triggers. That's what we talked about previously, learning to cope with that discomfort or changing the circumstances that cause discomfort. And so there's- This is like surfing the urge and stuff like this, right? Exactly, lots of advice. Now, I wanna tell you, I do not recommend in the book meditation and mindfulness. Not that they are ba bad techniques, they're great techniques, it's just been talked about ad nauseum. So I wanna, I wanna promise- It's funny, Nir, I was waiting for it. <laughs> <laughs> but I honestly thought, I was glad that you left us with things like leaves on a stream and surfing the urge, and maybe we can leave those as, as bait for people to go explore the book further, but they didn't reek of meditation, but I also thought, hey, I can do this. Yes, exactly, exactly. And so I wanna, I wanna have a confession here. And I know there are many people out there who don't feel like they can say this, Meditation didn't freaking work for me, okay? It's not that I don't recommend people do it. If it works for you, I recommend you do it. It's just I wanted to move beyond that. So that's the only time that it's ever mentioned in the book is when I say, I will not be recommending this. Go read somebody else's book on meditation and mindfulness. <laughs> so I give you very practical techniques. Many of them come from acceptance and commitment therapy, from cognitive behavioral therapy, these very actionable tips that we can do to cope with discomfort. That's the first thing we have to do. That's the most important. The next step is that we have to make time for traction. Only one-third of people actually keep a calendar. One-third of people <laughs> keep a calendar. So, you know, as I was researching this book, I was talking to a lot of folks who told me, oh, my God, the world is so distracting. Technology is addicting us. There's nothing we can do. Uh, I'm constantly distracted. My boss says this. My kids do this. I, I can't get anything done. And I say, wow, that's, that's really tragic. Can, can I see your calendar? Can I see what it was that you planned to do today? And they sheepishly, you know, they take out their phone and they show me their calendar and it's blank. There's nothing on it. <laughs> Maybe like a dentist appointment or something. So this brings me to this very important principle that if you don't plan your time, somebody else will. That you cannot call something a distraction unless you know what it distracted you from. 
So in this day and age, we have to keep a time box calendar. That means planning every minute of our day as a template. Doesn't mean you have to you know, religiously do everything on that calendar. You're gonna get distracted. Being indistractable does not mean never getting distracted. It means striving to do what you say you're going to do. But how do you know what you are going to do unless you have a template for how to spend your time? And by the way, this takes me a grand total of 15 minutes a week. On Sunday evenings, I sit down, I look at my calendar for the week, and I have it blocked out. How do I want to spend my time in this week? And, and you want to do that as frequently as your schedule changes, right? So for me, it literally takes 15 minutes. I actually have a tool on my website at nearandfar.com that can help you make this template for yourself. It's, it takes a little bit of time up front, but then once you have that template, you can use it forever and ever. That's not good enough. You also have to sync your time with your family, with your relationships, and with the stakeholders at work. Because the fact is, if you don't make time for those people, I was very guilty of this with my family, they became what's called a residual benefactor. I learned this term in, in business school. The residual benefactor, when a company goes bankrupt, it's the schmuck that gets whatever's left over. <laughs> I was treating my family. Like, I didn't plan time to be with my family. I didn't plan time to be with my friends. And my relationships suffered because of that. And so if they're important to you in your life, you have to make time for them on your schedule. Why don't people do this? An excuse I, I, I frequently get is that, you know, I don't want to live my life that way. I like to be spontaneous. And I get that. I get that. What I would advise is planned spontaneity, right? You're not going to have fun with your friends unless your friends are around you. So plan yeah. the time for your friends to be there and then be spontaneous. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> totally fine. Like, for example, I'm looking at my calendar. This Saturday, I have six hours to go to Central Park. It's on my calendar. I don't know what I'm going to do in Central Park, but I know I'll tell you what I don't want to do. I don't want to take business phone calls. I don't want to get distracted by the news. I just want to enjoy Central Park for those six hours, but it's on my calendar. That's time that I've booked. And so that is a really, really important practice. You do bring up friendship as a practice, family as a practice, parenting as a practice. And I think this is fascinating because it all sets the foundations as a priority before your workplace. Right, it's the, the mantra I live by is to turn your values into time. Your calendar should reflect your values. And if there's nothing on there, how do you know what you stand for? Yeah. If you wanna see what somebody's really about, see how they spend their time and how they spend their money. They can talk a good game, but what really determines what they value in life is how they spend their time and how they spend their money. So the third one is about hacking back external triggers. So remember how we talked about how external triggers can drive you towards traction or distraction. So hacking back external triggers is about making sure that we can turn off or hack back to moderate all of these external triggers that don't serve us. And it's not that all external triggers are bad, right? Your phone, ping, ding, notification, whatever, is not necessarily bad. It's about to what ends does it lead. So if, again, if it, if it leads you to go work out, terrific, keep it. But if it distracts you in the middle of a business meeting, well, then you have to hack back those external triggers. The nice thing is, is that it's not that hard to do. Just people haven't learned these techniques and they haven't, I think a lot of people aren't aware of how many technologies make it so easy to hack back technology. So for example, I love Facebook. There's nothing wrong with Facebook when it comes to a, a distraction perspective if you use it the way you want as opposed to the way Zuckerberg wants. So every time I check Facebook, I've installed this Chrome extension called Facebook Newsfeed Eradicator. So I don't see my newsfeed anymore. I see an inspirational quote. And if I want to check up on my friends, I go to their page and I see what's up with them, right? And so there's dozens of different tools to hack back external triggers. What I found is that 
you know, the technology is only the tip of the iceberg. One of the biggest sources of distraction is the open floor plan office. Headphones aren't enough, people. Like people, they don't know whether you're just listening to music and you can be interrupted or not. So I give you this screen sign that you can put on your monitor that tells people, hey, I'm indistractable right now. Please come back a, a bit later. So that's the third step is hack back external triggers. There's a lot more there. You have a lot more there. You're on a warpath against fubbing. Can you describe what this is? Yes. Fubbing is phone snubbing. It's like, I'm going to use that. Yeah, stop fubbing me, bro. Don't fub me. <laughs> exactly. Yeah, so that actually leads me to the fourth step. So the, the first three is master internal triggers, make time for traction, hack back external triggers. The fourth step is to prevent distraction with pacts. And these pacts are pre-commitments, are things that we decide in advance that make sure we don't get distracted. You know, one strategy that we discuss is how to keep distractions out. Another strategy is about how do we keep ourselves in. And so that's where I talk about, again, how we can use technology to help keep ourselves in to make sure we don't get distracted. Things that we can do on our, on our devices, on our desktops to make sure that we don't allow ourselves to become distracted. And then these promises that we can make around our identity. I talk about how important it is to shape your identity in a way that affects your behavior. We talked about that in the very, very beginning of the conversation, how important it is. You know, so, so in my experience, when I called myself a vegetarian, I'm no longer vegetarian, but I was for five years uh, before college, that shaped my behaviors. And so the reason I call the book Indistractable is because I want that to be a moniker. I want that to be an identity so that you know we have a reason to live up to this identity. So those are the big four steps is master internal triggers, make time for traction, hack back external triggers, and prevent distraction with packs. Since I started this, I put on about 15 pounds of muscle. Uh, I can't believe it because, again, you know, I, I hated exercising. <laughs> and so <laughs> I, I would get distracted from it, right? I would find every reason not to exercise. So I'm healthier than I've ever been. I eat better than I ever have. I have more time for things that I think are important, more time with my wife, more time with my friends, more time with my daughter. And when I'm with those people, I am fully present. And the best thing is I still enjoy all these technologies, right? I'm not this holier than thou, you know, stop using video games. Video games are melting your brain. Stop using social media. It's melting your brain. That's all a bunch of rubbish. We can learn how to use this stuff in a way that helps us get the best of these technologies without letting it get the best of us. Huge thanks to Nir for coming on the show. And uh, welcome back, uh, boss man. We're, hey, uh, we're, we're thanks ha- for having me on my show. We're having- <laughs> <laughs> you are on the deals portion. And of course, we're going to get to rock reviews and news. But before we do that, any tips on being indistractable? Of course, Nir has written a whole book on the issue. Well, I don't know. I'm pretty distractible, it seems like. <laughs> uh, <laughs> uh, the first thing that I did to become not so distractible, Dan, and it has failed because they're back on my phone is I deleted like Twitter and Instagram. I had to load Instagram up the other day because I had to direct message somebody and you can't do it from the web client. It's so funny. Here this again. multiple channel thing is really fascinating where certain people you're on messenger, certain people you're on WhatsApp, certain people you're on Instagram. It's an interesting thing. And it's, it's difficult to imagine that it'll still be that way 10 years from now, but we'll see. Well, you know, every generation has had this freak out moment where, oh my gosh, this new technology is going to come in. It's going to distract us all. 
And what we need to get back to is where we used to be, be pre-distraction where everything was gravy. Well, let's just turn that frown upside down for a second, drink a little lemonade, whatever, mix our metaphors. How about there's never been a greater time in the world to create. There's never been more tools at your disposal to build, create your message, your business, your asset, whatever. I think it's incumbent upon us to use distraction as a heuristic for how motivated we are, for how focused we are. You know, if you're not interested in what you're doing as an entrepreneur, it's an enormous problem, right? And it's not like when you had the old corporate nine to five and you just Velcro yourself into the chair for 30 minutes and then you do the strategic coffee break and strategic lunch break and manage to hang on till 5 p.m. As an entrepreneur, you need to be building for five hours a day. That's our perspective here at this show. The reality is, is like, if you'd rather browse Facebook, it's maybe worth digging into saying, is there something about browsing Facebook beyond just the pure addictive qualities that I enjoy? For example, do you like research and tinkering around, like looking at trends, analyzing data? Maybe there's something there for you, or maybe it's just a matter of you don't like what you're doing because you have an emotionally toxic attitude towards it, or you're trying to do something that you think you're supposed to be doing. But actually, it's not who you are as a person. And in today's business world, where the amount of ways in which we can do business and make a profit and build a business in the ways in which we want to, I think it's, it's a big opportunity to say, get off of it. You don't have to take smart drugs and drink 10 coffees a day and stare at your screen. And you, what you want to do is find the thing that makes you want to do all those things, right? That to me is my productivity hack. And this is one that I learned from you, boss man, is you got to figure out what engages you and why you're doing the things you're doing. And if you can answer that question, you're going to find a path to profit down that lane. You're telling me I should start a used car dealer. (laughs) (laughs) I I need a lot. I I need a lot. I know, man. Okay. We are going to get moving on to some rock, some reviews, and of course, the news. But before we get moving on to that rock, those reviews and that news, we want to try out a new segment we're really excited about today. We're going to call it Dynamite Deals. DynamiteDeals.co. Got a big deal on the dot co, by the way. We dropped the M and we you just got a that smash M deal. Cost <laughs> Here's the deal, boss, man. We've been talking about this for a long time below the podcast, in the listenership, at our events. There is such an incredible exchange of profitable products and services that can grow your business. That's right. Like an ideal productized service, you can purchase it. And it becomes an investment almost immediately. You're making your money back within six to 12 months of investing in that product or service. Dan, these organizations that we have, these companies that we own, they used to have two and three times as many people as they do now. Yeah. And the reason the why head the headcounts count, are dwindling. Yeah. The, and the reason is because you're able to just buy services and products and software like this, bolt it onto your business, keep your overhead low, outsource some of the work. All right. So we can talk about the philosophy behind it. But the concept of Dynamite Deals is essentially this. There's so many people informally seeing business growth by exchanging these services at our events, like in the forum and and stuff like that. Well, what if we made it public and created a quantity discount, put a timeline on it, put a limit on these amount of deals? So there's X amount of units available. You're getting a huge discount if you act now to go get the service. And for the right business, 
getting the right productized service fit or the right product fit could really grow your business. So that's the idea behind dynamitedeals.co. So for this first deal, Ian will be available for seven days. Or until it's out. Or until it's sold out. Because again, this is a productized service. So it's not like software where we can sell unlimited amounts. So if you are interested in today's deal, put down your phone, pick up your laptop, go over to dynamitedeals.co and see if this is an opportunity to push button, one click, grow your business. Again, that's the idea of dynamitedeals.co. So... Who is providing today's deal? Dan, what I think is really important about these deals is that we can identify high quality service providers that can actually grow your business. And I think that Maddie Taylor of Content Refined can actually do that. She's been on the podcast before. She is offering a pretty unique package, actually two. So here's the deal, Ian. For this week only, for the next seven days or until we sell out over at dynamitedeals.co, You've negotiated discounts of up to 40% on the content boost packages. And this is the one that I initially found super interesting, which is essentially if you have content in your business that is making you money, this dynamite deal will allow you to upgrade that content, retarget it towards profitable keywords, AdWords, edit. And ideally, like again, this is something that everybody has at the end of their to-do list, but we're not getting around to it. So why not have a competent service, do it for you, make those money pages even more money. This is one of the hardest things to do in a business, Dan, to sit down and write. And this team over at Content Refine is going to do that for you. They're actually going to audit your content that you have already, figure out what's good about it. They're going to edit the articles. They're going to add 500 to 1,000 words. And they're going to figure out what key terms are important. Now, you might go to them and you say like, hey, these are the key terms that are important. I just want you to hammer on these. That's good. All right. So again, this is for seven days only. We have a limited time package. There's also another service available with a lesser discount, which is the ongoing content marketing service, which is essentially you work with Content Refined to put out a weekly piece of content on your website that over the long term, if you have a way to monetize this traffic, again, I think this is for people with established businesses, although it must be said, you buy the coupon at dynamitedeals.com. You don't have to cash that coupon in right away, essentially. So if, if you got a business going up in a couple of months, you don't have to start right away. Let me but give you, you do couple. have to start right away if you want to get the coupon. It's going to be gone in yeah. seven days or when they run out. Let me give you a couple scenarios, Dan, for the new content, right? You buy a site from somebody. You got to figure out how am I going to keep this thing going, right? It's making money. I don't want it to die. Keep putting content on it. You have an existing site that's making money. It's so hard, Dan, to sit down and figure out, well, oh, what am I going to write about? How am I going to do it? Autopilot, dude. Autopilot. Click the button. They do the research for you. They rate the articles. They'll even publish it to your website yeah. if that's what you want to do. You don't have to think about anything here. And I think, Dan, this is like one of the hardest lessons for me to learn is just like pay now, don't think about it. And then like you get results like down the road, six months to a year. Yeah, well, this is a way everybody's like, oh, well, how am I going to invest my money? Well, this is a way you can invest your money into your business. If you got a profitable business, a good product, a way to convert customers. I mean, it's hard to lose by either upgrading your content that's on the web or by getting a long tail content strategy where you're pumping out content that's attracting people to your business for years to come. That's the idea behind this dynamite deal. Again, available for seven days. Thank you, boss man, for cutting such a steep discount. Head on over to dynamitedeals.com and let us know what you think. Certainly check it out. And if this is something that's interesting to listen to this show, Maybe we'll do another one next week. All right. So we're going to get moving back now to The Rock, the reviews, and the news. 
So what track you got for us this week? Please don't make fun of me for interfering in your DJ. You have complete uh, autonomy. That is not true. Everybody knows that you're pulling the strings behind the scenes. <laughs> I'll tell a story about this song because there's a story about every song. We were at my house having a little party. And you heard a, this song. We were having a good party. We were having a good party. And you heard this song in the background. And you said, man, you should play this on the podcast instead of that crap you listen to that I don't like. So here it is. <laughs> this is Anderson Pack. Come down. Great track. And today we got a five-star review over on iTunes Boss Man from Brooke Craven, who says, Dan and Ian, host of the Tropical MBA podcast, highlight all aspects of entrepreneurship and business. And this is a can't-miss podcast. The hosts and expert guests Give insightful advice and information helpful to anybody starting a business. Thank you, Brooke. We appreciate that five-star review, that juicy five-star review over on iTunes. That's bound to help our rankings. I would hope so. (laughs) Although I hear we're becoming a big thing on Spotify now, which is great. I don't know if Spotify has Call reviews. us Spotify. You know, I, I should be coming a big thing on Spotify because I, I will like buy anything that Spotify sends me. I pay I, Spotify every month. For sure. It's one of one of my favorite memberships. Absolutely. That and Audible. I'm loving the audio membership stuff. The news this week, boss man. We're back in Austin, Texas. Yeah. Summer vacation's over in Barcelona. It was a wonderful time. Part of me wishes I was still there, but I am happy to be back in Austin. I think one thing So about- many people, the community kind of came to Barcelona, right? A lot of listeners of the pod, a lot of people that have been on the pod, a lot of DC members, a lot of a wonderful bike rides, many gin and tonics, lots of playing with the little dude. I mean, it was just a really, really fun family summer. It was amazing. Don't forget the pizza. I tried to start a pizza contest who could eat the most slices and you guys like <laughs> you guys pieced out on like the second week. I still have my tally going. I think I won that. On that point, it is September, which is universal business owners unite around the world around one common cause, which is get your shit together because it's September. And if your customers aren't buying your stuff in August, you can always say, oh, it's August. People are on vacation. I'm on vacation. No biggie. Well, now it's September. There's a whole conference season coming up. There's annual revenue goals to meet before the holiday season. For us, it really feels like a sprint. You know, We pulled everybody into the office in one of the last weeks in August to lay out the goals until our next team retreat in October. And that's crunch time. I mean, If you don't get the pipeline strong, if you don't have your projects rolling out, then you're just not going to meet your 2019 goals. So I really feel that vibe in September that everybody is just on the stick and it's nice to be home for that, you know? All right, boss man. That is it for this week, this mid-September tropical NBA podcast. It's football season. That's what I'm doing this weekend. I will not be anywhere near the television. (laughs) Let me know how that goes. (laughs) All right, everybody. Regardless of what you're doing this weekend, we hope to see you next Thursday morning, 8 a.m. Eastern Standard Time. Hey, thanks for listening to the Tropical MBA podcast. You can go to tropicalmba.com, get access to hundreds of back episodes and all kinds of other goodies. Load up your iPod. That is the cheapest way to fly business class on your next international flight. We will see you next Thursday morning. 
8 a.m. Eastern Standard Time.